Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Joining me today is Frederick Douglass Reynolds, author of St. Bloodbath, a true crime story about the murders of five homeless people living in an encampment in the city of Long Beach, California, around Halloween of 2008. Before we get started, here's the inside scoop on Frederick Douglass Reynolds. He's a retired L.A. County Sheriff's Homicide Sergeant. He was born in Rocky Mount, Virginia, and grew up in Detroit, Michigan, where he became a petty criminal and was involved in gangs. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 1979 to escape the life of crime he seemed destined for. And after a brief stint in Okinawa, Japan, he finished out his military career in Southern California, ultimately becoming a police officer with the Compton Police Department. He worked there from 1985 until 2000, then transferred to the Sheriff's Department where he worked an additional 17 years before retiring in 2017. He is the recipient of over 75 commendations, including two California Officer of the Year awards. He currently lives in Southern California with his wife, Carolyn, and their daughter, Lauren, and young son, Desmond. They have six other adult children and nine grandchildren. You can learn more about Frederick Douglass Reynolds and his work at frederickreynolds.com. Well, hi, Fred. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you for having me on. I guess to get us started... Why don't you tell us a little bit about St. Bloodbath? What is this all about? St. Bloodbath is a true crime story that occurred around Halloween of 2008. At the time, I was living in the city of Long Beach, and I worked as a deputy sheriff in Carson, which is a city adjacent to Long Beach. Mm. On the morning of November the 1st, five homeless people were shot to death in an encampment by the freeway, and it happened about probably, I don't know, less than a mile from where I was living at the time. Mm. And uh, some of the victims I knew, some of the victims I had actually given money to on my way to work, some of the victims I had purchased food for. And at least two of the victims I knew through my professional life because they were informants for the unit that I was assigned to as a a deputy sheriff. I was the supervisor of the gang unit. Mm. So I had personal connections with several of the victims. And the investigator that was assigned to the case, it was a Long Beach homicide investigator by the name of Mark McGuire. And he, he's my best friend. And I remember him investigating the case. And, you know, I, I knew how big of a story it was at the time because, for God's sakes, five people were massacred. And at the time, the uh, city of Long Beach, they were very, very afraid that perhaps a killer of homeless people was on the loose in the city. Yeah. So there, it was a lot of press surrounding this story at the time. And for a couple of years, the story went nowhere. And about six months after those five people were murdered in Long Beach, a lady riding a horse while her dog walked alongside of them, the dog found a, a hand, a severed hand. And this is in the desert about 100 miles away from Long Beach in the city of Lancaster. So she called the sheriff's station. They ended up sending a team of two homicide investigators up to Lancaster, Lancaster rather, to investigate the circumstances surrounding the found hand. Fast forward two years, you know, nothing's going on with the two cases. The case in Long Beach, they had run into a dead end. 
the case in Lancaster, they had run into a dead end, you know, and they never knew that the two cases were connected. Um, the same suspect committed both crimes. Wow. I'm not going to get too much into uh, the circumstances of how the case was made, mm -hmm. but they ended up mm -hmm. making a connection between the two cases. So you have these two investigators from the sheriff's department. They end up working with the two investigators from the Long Beach Police Department to bring this case together. And I knew all four investigators. I worked with, like I said, McGuire was, remains my best friend to this day. His partner, Cortez, I had worked with him on several cases. And the two homicide investigators from the sheriff's department, one of them actually trained me as a homicide investigator when I was promoted. And the other uh, individual, his name is Robert Gray. I worked with him as well. So I had a very intimate connection, both with the victims, the location of the murders, and the investigators themselves. And I knew this was a good story because once the city of Long Beach found out that there wasn't, in fact, a serial killer running around, the story kind of went away. And it was kind of like, you know, here we go again. Nobody really cares about people that are unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And and they kind of forgot about it. They put it on the back burner. And mind you, the hand up in Lancaster ended up being part of a victim that was murdered in March of 2009. Now this victim was homeless as well. And he was a teenager and he was a failed product of the foster care system in California. Mm. So we have all these unfortunate victims that are more or less outcasts of society and nobody cared about them anymore. The murders were like out of sight, out of mind. So once I retired and you know, I, I wrote the first book, Black, White and Gray All Over, you know, I, I like I said, I did it because I wanted to leave a record, you know, of my life and of my career. And when it started doing well, as you know, as far as the critics are concerned, it, it won a lot of awards. Yeah. I yeah. said, well, I'm going to see if I can write this book about the murders in Long Beach that my friends worked, right? And the title of the book is St. Bloodbath. And I'm not going to get into why it's titled that because it, it will be giving away part of the story. But the individuals involved in these murders were very, very ruthless individuals. So I talked to McGuire. He still had all of his case files. He had tape recordings of the suspects involved. So I reviewed everything. I interviewed the investigators. I even interviewed a woman that was connected to one of the antagonists involved in this story. So I had a very, very good feel for the story. And once I got all the information, I sat down and I started writing it. But what was most important to me when I wrote this story was humanizing the victims. I read so many stories, particularly true crime stories, where the victims are more or less an afterthought. And the emphasis is placed on the killer or killers, you know, with the investigators a little bit in the, in the background. They're like supporting cast. But the stories are always centered around the killers. In this story, I wanted the readers to understand the plight of the victims involved. I wanted them to understand their daily lives, you know, what they went through, how hard their lives were. And then to have these, you know, ruthless killers just massacre them while they're just trying to eke out a living, it, you know, it, it resonated with me and it touched me. And I felt that I wanted to bring this story to the people so that they can understand that these victims, you know, they're human as well. They go through the same things that everyone else uh, goes through in life and they're not to be forgotten yeah that's the strong point of the book is i was able 
to bring the reader into the day-to-day lives of how these homeless people live. And I, I was able to do that because I knew some of them and I knew how they talked, I knew how they thought, I knew how they lived. It's incredulous to me that, you know, stories like this don't get any, you know, they get, kind of get swept under the rug. Yes. Um, so was part of your motivation for telling the story to get this story out into the world? Absolutely, because these victims deserve as much empathy and as much, I guess you can say, sympathy as, say, like the victims of the Tate-LaBianca murders, mm-hmm. okay, Charles Manson, right? Yeah. Um, five people murdered and that, five or six people murdered in that. That story lives forever. Everybody, you know, knows about Sharon Tate and the LaBianca murders. Right. In this situation, you have these poor homeless people, some of them drug addicts, and they're murdered, and, and their lives somehow weren't as important as these rich people. Both incidents were horrible, yeah. but one goes away, and one lives in the consciousness of America forever. So, you know, my thought process is everybody is important, you know, whether they're super rich, super famous, or whether they're just, you know, people who happen to be sleeping in tents on the side of a freeway that have to beg for food every day. Mm-hmm. No, no one life is more important than the other. No one says that they lived perfect lives. But I think that I was able to portray them in a kind and sensitive way so that someone who read about them would say, oh, these people, you know, they were just like us. They just were unfortunate and they had to do what they had to do to survive. Doesn't give anyone the right to take their lives in the middle of the night as they sleep in tents. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned giving voice to the victims in your narrative. How difficult was that? What was your biggest challenge with that aspect of the story? Making sure that I didn't portray them in a negative light. I mean, reality is reality. So if you have uh, a woman that that has to sell her body to survive, I'm not going to, you know, portray her as someone that went to church every Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. Right. But I also have to portray her as a human being that, that has faults. Right. So I wanted to make sure that I portrayed them as they live but I also wanted people to understand why they lived like they did, if that makes sense. Sometimes we're a victim of circumstances that are out of our control, but we still have to do what we have to do to survive. And as I started writing this book and as I started doing my research, I began to understand the unhoused people that live among us. I began to understand why some of them are in the situations that they're in. And not all of them are in those situations because they want to be. Some of them are in that, well, I should say most of them are in those situations because of poor life choices, you know, and and ultimately they end up living the way that they did. But, you know, I I still had empathy for them. Like I said, I I knew some of them and I wanted to portray them in, I guess you could say as as humanely as possible and authentically as possible. If they smoked methamphetamine, I can't sugarcoat it and say that they didn't. You know, if they sold themselves so that they could survive, I couldn't say that they didn't. But just because they did those things, I didn't have to portray them as being bad people, if that makes sense. Right. You know, sometimes good people have to do bad things for reasons that others among us might not understand, but reasons that make perfect sense to them so that they can survive. Well, absolutely. And that goes back to that old saying, you know, walk a mile in my shoes, because you don't know people's circumstances. Correct. And and, I mean, no one sets out to be homeless, I don't feel like, you know. Right, Um, right. But 
things happen and it could happen to, you know, anyone. I don't know. I just keep going back to that saying, don't judge me unless you've walked a mile in my shoes. Exactly. Like I keep saying there, they were human. They they had conversations like we did. They had feelings like we did. They have viewpoints of, of world matters like we did. It's just that their viewpoints were, were narrow because their day to day was about survival mm-hmm. and not about excess. It was about survival. It's kind of ironic, you know, that their day to day were survival, but somebody from outside of their world came in and ended their quest for survival. Yeah. Just just an evil, evil person. Yeah. You said you knew most of the victims from your years in working in law enforcement. What was it like when you first heard the news about what happened? What was your reaction? You know, it's interesting. Like I said, I lived about a half a mile from where the murders happened. And I heard the shots. Oh, wow. I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, the end result was going to be this, but I remember waking up to the news and, um, you know, it was breaking news, of course, when five people shot in the homeless encampment. And I, and I looked and I said, oh, wow, that's that's not far from me. That's down, there's a, a restaurant, Fantastic Burgers, it still stands today. in Santa Fe and Wardlow, where I used to, you know, go and get coffee and get food for my family a lot of times. And some of the victims used to hang out there begging for food. And there there was a freeway a block away from the restaurant. Actually, the, the encampment was on the side of the freeway. So they would um, go to the on-ramp of the freeway where they would panhandle, mm-hmm. you know, and sometimes I would um, give them money and, you know, talk to them a couple of seconds before I went to work. So I didn't know who the victims were, of course. I just knew five people had been murdered. And then when I got to work and the names of the victims were broadcast, once they found out who they were, uh, like, oh, God, I know this guy. He worked for us, right? Mm. He worked for us in an undercover capacity. Um, his girlfriend, I, I know her. I know her family. Her family was a real known family in the city of Carson, right? And they showed pictures of the other ones. They're like, oh, God, I know this guy. I just gave him money. Or, you know, I know her. I saw her, you know, standing on the, on the sidewalk, you know, flagging down cars, right? So it was like a really, really personal connection to me. And when my friend Mark calls me and he says, hey, man, I caught the, the five murders by the freeway. I'm like, oh, my God, anything we can do to help? And, you know, he tells me the victims. And, you know, I, in the book, I wrote myself out of it because I didn't want to be a part of it. I wanted to tell it through others' eyes, mm-hmm. right? But the team that McGuire and his partner came to seek help from, I supervised that team. So I was the unknown supervisor, but I didn't want my name to be in the story because I didn't want to detract from the story. I wasn't big enough a part of the story where I could insert myself into it. But one of the guys that worked for me was. So his name is Waddell. So he is the one that McGuire actually spoke to about the victims, and um, they ended up giving him some good advice about who the victims were and what, what they were involved in. Yeah. So the idea for your book, stemmed from the murders and all. But the book is really about so much more than the murders. Tell us about some of the other aspects of the book. I felt that the conversations that detectives have when they're alone in their cars and they're driving to and from witness interviews or whatever they do in their day to day, the conversations are never, never exposed to the general public, to the readers. And these investigators, they have some really, really introspective conversations about life, about death, in addition to their cases. And also, you know, 
I mean, they kid around a lot. It's called gallows humor because they see so much death and destruction. Mm. You know, they have to have some lightheartedness, you know, during their conversations. Right. So that was really important to me that the reader ride in the detective's car with them to get a bird's eye view of what they talk about and how the conversations go. And I think I was able to capture that because I knew all four of them, like I said, and I know the conversations. I've been a part of those conversations. And a lot of times we would talk about why some of these people end up like they end up. Why is there a drug problem in the country? What is the end result of that problem? How law enforcement sometimes is directed and mandated to attack it one way, which ends up producing a bigger problem, mm -hmm. right? So we talk about those things, investigators, you know, cops, you know, I know, I know it's hard to believe, but cops are human beings and we have <laughs> families, and, you know, we go home and, and, and tell our kids to clean up their rooms just like everybody else. So we, we have these viewpoints of wider issues in the country and we talk about them. And a lot of times cops aren't happy with the way things are going. Mm -hmm. Right. And sometimes they vent their frustrations. Cops also, some cops, they also shirk their responsibilities at times. And this was brought up in the book, how, you know, things that some cops didn't do could have helped put this case to, to rest a lot sooner. Mm. You know what I mean? It, it, whether it's incompetence, whether it, it was, you know, just laziness, these issues were brought up in the book as well. In addition to the hard work, that investigators put in these cases, the tedious work that you know, when you watch a cop show, you know, it's shoot them up and kill five people and the next day they're back at work sitting at their desk typing. Well, that's not the real world. The real world when you're investigating these murder cases is talking to people, endless conversations. A lot of them go nowhere, right? Yeah. But you have to talk to these people in order to understand what went on, what happened, and a lot of these conversations, they point you to another individual, and you talk to that person, and that person points you to another individual, and, 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 and it ends up going like this around and around and around until you eventually get to that one person that can give you the information that you need to solve these cases, right? Sounds exhausting. That's, <laughs> yes, that's tedious work, but it's detective work. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make the interviews that the investigators were having with these various uh, street people, I tried to make them as realistic as possible. And I think I did a pretty good job of that. You have to have an eye for things to determine what may or may not be evidence. Because if you overlook something like that, then the case doesn't get solved. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's the drudgery of, of, of police work. It's not, you know, foot chases and, and shootouts. Yeah, I think we watch too much TV, so we get yes. an unrealistic view of how things really are, you know. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the dynamic between the detectives and giving voice to the victims. Those are a couple of things that our reviewer really enjoyed most about your book. Like you said, being in the back seat uh, just really felt like she was in the story. So, yeah, I feel like you did a remarkable job giving voice to, to all the different elements. Do you ever miss being in the field? Um, you know, God, that's a hard question. <laughs> if, <laughs> if you would have asked me that before 2020, I would have said yes. Mm. But as I sit here today, I, I'm going to say no, that I don't miss it uh, because of the actions of a, of a few, you know, knucklehead cops. Mm. They've just made it just 
horrible for the good men and women to do their job. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I couldn't imagine what these men and women are going through out there today. You know, but I'm I'm gonna continue to give voice to them through my writings. And one of the things that I think people enjoy the most about my books is that they aren't one-sided, okay? They give viewpoints from both angles. If someone does a good job, then I'm going to talk about it, but I'm not going to gloss over someone that does a bad job or someone that does, you know, a cop that does something criminal or, you know, or or makes a racist remark. If it happened, it happened, and I'm going to write about it. You know, I let the chips fall where they may. thing about that is that the chips... For the good police work, there's a lot more of them than there are for the bad police work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as long as you can keep that viewpoint, people will understand that, hey, you know, some of these cops make mistakes. Some of them are just bad, the bad ones we need to get rid of. But we just can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is what they seem to be doing right now. Right. Um, And and that's why, you know, I I gave a long-winded answer to your question, but. No, I don't miss it. Um, Right now, I prefer writing about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I imagine you have a lot of experiences you could write about. And I feel like you've truly found your calling writing about true crime and and societal matters. You mentioned your first book, Black, White, and Gray All Over. And I mean, that made just amazing waves in the literary world. And it's it's early days with St. Bloodbath since it was just published in May. But Every indication looks like it's going to be just as well received, if not even more so. What drives your passion for exploring these types of narratives? Is it kind of a just write what you know type thing or or is it deeper than that? You know, I think it's deeper than that. I see it from both sides. Actually, I see it from three sides. Okay, I see what's going on in this country through the eyes of an older black man. I see what's going on in this country through the eyes of a former police officer. And I see what's going on in this country through the eyes of someone who was a juvenile delinquent and that broke the law, Mm. right? Mm. So I'm able to see the good and the bad from all three sides. You have to find some good in, in the three sides, right? So I'm able to talk about all three because I've experienced all three without going overboard. I read some books you know, and they're from the first side, from the viewpoint of someone black that was born, lived and grew up in this country. And it's just non going hatred towards everything mm. that's not black. Mm. Everything is racist. You know, I'm oppressed because of this. I'm oppressed because of that. Well, that's not altogether true. Right. Of course, there's been racism in this country. Of course, there still is racism in this country. But it isn't to the point where, you know, people of color are suffocating, as some would have you believe. Mm. And then I go to the viewpoint of being a police officer, right? Of course, there's some crooked cops. Of course, there's some incompetent cops. But there's cops that will lay their lives down for you. I've seen cops run into burning buildings to save not just babies, but pets. Mm. And I've seen cops that will run into gunfire to save someone, right? So there's that viewpoint. And then there's the viewpoint of someone on the other side of the law. And I understand that sometimes people just relish in breaking laws. There are some people that are so evil they live to kill, rape, and maim, okay? And they'll never be rehabilitated. There are some people that end up breaking the law 
like myself because I was crying out for attention. Right. You know, I wanted people to look at me. I needed a home life. I found a home life in the streets. That's why I believe I was so successful when I was a police officer working with the gang unit because I was able to recognize these kids that were, you know, claiming to be gang members and claiming to be big and bad. And I would pull them aside and say, I know what's going on with you. This is not the way. Rather than just automatically just handcuffing them, okay, you did this, you go to jail forever. No, I know what's going on with you. This is not the way. But then there were others when there was no other way for them. Yeah. And those people, yeah. we have to remove them, you know, from society because they just want to hurt people. So I'm able to speak knowledgeably on all three angles of the ailments of our current day society. Yeah. And also, I think now you have the wisdom of hindsight, too. It's you can oh. go back and look and, and see things from a different perspective that you couldn't normally see while you're in the midst of those things, you know. Exactly. And, you know, that it's funny that you brought that up because that actually presented itself to me because, you know, I lived through, well, now it's three riots or civil unrest. Um, but one, when I was a child in 1967 in Detroit, you know, I saw what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know why it was happening, but I I saw it. And then in 1992 in L.A. during the, the Rodney King civil unrest, I actually worked it. So I was able to look at everything that was going on, you know, through more informative eyes, right? So the hindsight got better. And then in 2020, you know, I knew what drove everything. I knew why people were so upset because, it, you know, everything had just come to a head. And you know, when you grow up in certain areas of this country, you saw police brutality. Okay, I'm just being perfectly honest with you. Mm -hmm. You saw police brutality, and it was because those police officers who worked in those particular areas, not all of them, but some of them, they weren't able to distinguish between, you know, who was good or who was bad. It was like, everybody's bad. And once I became a police officer, obviously I was able to distinguish who was good and who was bad. Just because a kid is walking to the store with a group of gang members, it doesn't mean that he's a gang member too. It means that the gang members live next door to him and they happen to be walking to the store. So he said, hey, let me come with you guys to the store, mm. right? Then you get stopped by the cops and the cops categorize everybody as gang members, even the good kid that lives next door to the gang members. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. With, without that insight, you can unknowingly set this kid who wasn't a gang member on that path to becoming one just because of the way you treated him and the way you classified him. Yeah, absolutely. Those yeah. people that are given the responsibility over others in society, when they mistreat us, we remember that always. I don't care how many years, you always remember it. And it affects you, right? And it affects you differently. If it's a doctor, you know, you're going to always remember that doctor that, that mistreated you or that had, you know, poor bedside manner. Mm -hmm. If it's a police officer, and you know, they curse at you while they give you a ticket. You know, you're not mad because you got the ticket because maybe you were going 95 and a 50, right? You're not mad that you got the ticket. You're mad because of the way that this cop talked to you. And you never forget that, right? If it's a cashier at a supermarket and they're rude to you, you'll think about it. Our cashier was rude, but it won't affect you in right. the ways that professional people that are charged with taking care of us in society affects you. 
You got to be mindful of the way you treat people. If you had a bad day, you know, at home, if you and your, your, your husband or your wife or your partner had an argument, you can't bring that to work with you. Mm, yeah. You know, because it affects you. And a lot of times that's where these situations come from because of something personal that happened to the cop. Yeah, I can see that. I think that happens in a lot of professions too, but it's different when you're out dealing with people with, of the public like that. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because you remember it. Yep. So if you had one wish that you hope people took away from reading St. Bloodbath, what would that be? That there are cops that care about human life just because it's life, right? Not because, you know, this person had a better social standing than another person. And I, I would also like people to take away that just because someone is less fortunate than you are, it doesn't make them any less human than you are. They deserve the same care, the same respect as anyone else. Mm -hmm. And I saw it when I was working, how some victims, you know, they they got, um, I guess you could say, better treatment or more kindness, more work, more everything just because of who they were, as opposed to, you know, this drug addict that was found, you know, shot to death in an alley. Yeah, I think it's getting worse today, too, because of social media and, and just the economic disparity. Yeah. It just seems like it's really getting worse instead of better. We're losing our empathy. And there's a part in the book where it's a conversation between McGuire and Cortez when they actually talk about us as humans, how just bad things and murders are, are just becoming like nothing, right? You know, it's like the murder is, is, is abstract until it happens to you. Right. We can read about 100 people being murdered, you know, in another country and, you know, flip the channel, not even, you know, mm -hmm. stay on the channel long enough to see what happened. Right. But if it happens somewhere close, then we're all in. Right. We need to be all in all the time. Yeah. I think what makes it hard is that there's so much bad news. You know, it's like people... A lot of bad news. There's a lot of bad news. There is a lot of good. I wish maybe the, the answer is there needs to be more reporting on positive things, you know? There does need to be more positive things, Sherry. That's that's a good point because when I wake up and I turn on the news and it's just, just all this bad news, it just kind of puts a, a, a dim specter on my entire day. It's like, God, can I ever wake up to like good news? Yeah. You know? I mean, it's important to hear all the news, but I think we need a little more emphasis on the positives too. Um, exactly. You know, give me some good news every now and then. Yeah. Right? You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, there's good stuff happening. But, you know, like they said. Yeah. Yeah. If it's not bad news, it's not news, I guess. I don't know. So I, I mentioned earlier, St. Bloodbath was just released in May. So I imagine you're doing a lot of marketing right now. But you also talked about continuing to write. So do you have some projects lined up for the future? I do. I have... A book that I'm working on, it's actually about uh, Mark McGuire. I'm co-authoring it with him. Oh, it's about oh. his, his life. He's got an interesting life. He, before he became a cop, he was a drummer for Barry White um, wow. and his Love Unlimited Orchestra. So, you know, I, it, it's interesting uh, how his life played out. And then I'm, I'm writing a uh, story. It's a work in progress, obviously, but and I don't even have a title for it. But it's kind of like a mixture of detective work with a horror story element mm. into it so fiction 
Yeah, yeah, kind of venturing outside of my comfort zone okay. a little bit. Well, good. Lots of good things to come then. Keep myself busy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Fred, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been wonderful to finally get to talk with you and, and learn more about you and your work. Sherry, thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Frederick Douglass Reynolds, author of St. Bloodbath. You can learn more about Frederick and his work at frederickreynolds.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.